Is my um, microphone producing some sort of tombra out there? Good. Uh, it's a real pleasure and honour uh, for me to be here this evening and uh, to be able to uh, serve Highfield Church here uh, in this manner. Uh, it's nice to see some returning faces from uh, the lectures I was giving earlier today and uh, welcome to the new faces as well. Um, as Kevin says, I'm going to put this into sort of two phases. Uh, See what I did there with the moon phases? Get it? Get it? Um, <clears throat> I thought it was a very pretty picture. Uh, I'm going to look in the first part at uh, what I suggest are three um, self-contradictions at the heart of a uh, new uh, atheist position. Uh, and that's based upon a paper of mine that I published uh, fairly recently in the journal Think, which is uh, produced by the Royal Society for Philosophy. And I think there are some free uh, copies of that paper available uh, at the back on the bookstall as well. So you can pick that up later for free. And then part two, uh, which is mainly based on the last chapter of my book, uh, where I interact with um, the critique of arguments for the existence of God given by um, new atheist thinkers, primarily Richard Dawkins, who of all of them is the one who spends the most time on that central issue. And I'm going to suggest, of course, that I think um, that their critique of the arguments for God uh, don't cut the philosophical mustard, as it were. Uh, I want to preface this, though, by saying I, I'm not um, addressing the new atheism because I think they give the, the most intellectually robust critique of my position as a Christian philosopher. Uh, I think their critique is very intellectually unrobust. Uh, I think there are atheist writers out there who do a much better job at giving me uh, a run for my money, as it were. Um, I'm addressing the new atheism because they have the most 
um, culturally visible voice uh, in this debate between theism and atheism. They've at least raised the issue to public consciousness again, uh, for which I'm thankful. And their viewpoints are the ones that are having the most influence in the, the cultural debate out there. Uh, Michael Roos, who is himself an atheist, notes that since the turn of the millennium, a new militancy has arisen among religious skeptics. It was uh, an article in Wired magazine called The New Atheism that kind of dubbed the new atheists as the new atheists. Um, some people also call them neo-atheists. And uh, Gary Wolfe, who was the contributor, uh, said the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, it's evil. And I think that's really how I would characterize the new atheism as well. It's not just the viewpoint that uh, a belief in God or in Jesus is an intellectual mistake, but also that it is a profoundly dangerous intellectual mistake. And actually there's something about the very nature of religious faith or belief um, that uh, means that it cannot but be a dangerous business. Christopher Hitchens, um, wonderful sartorial photo of him here, says in letters to a young contrarian, I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful. Seems to illustrate Gary Wolf's thesis straight down the line. The New Atheists, in other words, believe that at the core, at the very centre, of even the most outwardly benign and peaceful, more tea vicar kind of liberal, um, English, civilised religion is an immoral, an immoral commitment to flouting one's intellectual responsibilities. I think this is at the very heart and soul of their critique. So, um, American philosopher Daniel C. Dennett, um, author of a book called Breaking the Spell, he says, religion is the greatest threat to rationality and scientific progress. People are revered for their capacity to live in a dream world, to shield their minds from factual knowledge, and to make the major decisions of their lives by consulting voices in their heads that they call forth by rituals designed to intoxicate them. Imperviousness to reason is, I think, the, pro the property that we should most fear in religion. Other institutions or traditions may encourage a certain amount of irrationality, but only religion demands it as a sacred duty. Faith, according to the New Atheists, means that kind of irrationality. Dawkins says, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Victor Stenger says, faith is belief in the absence of supporting evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. A.C. Groening, faith is a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. That is what faith means. That is its very nature, according to the new atheism. 
Hence Dawkins says, I do everything in my power to warn people against faith itself, not just so-called extremist faith. The teachings of moderate religion, though not extremist in themselves, are an open invitation to extremism. Okay. Well, I disagree. Faith may be that for some religious traditions. It may be that in the minds of some Christians. But it is certainly not an accurate characterization of the uh, mainline central tradition of thinking about this subject within the Christian tradition. Certainly not the biblical view of the meaning of faith. It seems to me the new atheists just kind of ignore verses like 1 Peter 3.15 from the New Testament, where Peter says to other Christians, always be prepared to give an answer. And the word answer here is translated from the Greek word apologia. It's a, a word that kind of means a reasoned defense. It's what a, a lawyer would do in the court, giving his defense speech, his apologia. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have in Christ. But do this with gentleness and respect. So clearly Peter doesn't think that that hoping in Christ, having trust in Christ, having faith in Christ, is somehow compartmentalized off from having reasons for trusting in Christ. Faith is, in other words perhaps better translated these days, by the term trust. And trust may or may not be based upon good reasons, on evidence that supports it. But there is certainly nothing about the very meaning of the term trust, nothing about the very meaning of the term faith, that entails a lack of reasons or bleeding in the teeth of contrary evidence. As uh, Christian author C.S. Lewis put it, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Um, he wrote about an interesting analogy when he says, you know, I may be convinced on rational evidential grounds that an anesthesia, a- anesthetic will work and that I won't feel any pain when I go under the knife on the operating table. But that doesn't mean that when I'm on the slab and the knife is coming towards me, and I've been given the anesthesia, that I might not be a bit frightened and be tempted to try and run away, you know. There's a difference between believing that something is the case in a kind of abstract intellectual sense and actually putting your trust in it. Well, I think this combination of believing that and believing in, as a philosopher would put it, is a good way of understanding the meaning of faith in biblical terms. So I'd suggest that not only are the new atheists wrong about the very meaning of faith, the essence of faith, in that it's not, by definition, incompatible with reason. Actually, I think their purported defense of rationality, this is kind of the flag they want to run up and say, you know, come to us and defend being reasonable. I think they actually give a profoundly anti-rational defense of rationality that's self-contradictory in at least three ways, as I argue in the paper that's available. The first incoherence that I perceived is a self-contradictory epistemology. Now this 
epistemology is just a, a long word that philosophers use to confuse people who aren't philosophers. <laughs> they like doing that. Um, it's a Greek word, and what it basically means is how we know stuff. The study of how we know stuff. And I think when you ask the new atheists to give their account of how it is we should know stuff, they give you an incoherent account. Richard Dawkins, for example, once said this, next time someone tells you that something's true, why not say to them, what kind of evidence is there for that? And if they can't give you a good answer, I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. Or Sam Harris, who says, while believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other area of our lives, faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. So notice the emphasis here on evidence. Evidence is not only a rational way to come to believe things. For the New Atheists, it is the only rational way to come to believe things. Let me give you some thought experiments in response. Doubting that the universe is more than five minutes old. If you met someone who really doubted, really thought that the universe just sprang into existence five minutes ago, well, most of us would probably consider that a mark of madness or stupidity. But then the belief that the universe is indeed older than this, rather than having been created somehow five minutes ago, complete with every empirical appearance of greater age, you know, food in stomachs from uneaten meals, rings in trees that never grew, and so on, light coming from stars light years away that never made the distance travel. I would agree with anyone who said, yeah, but the universe is older than five minutes old. I think I agree. That's a perfectly rational belief of us to hold. But notice that that belief must be, must be, by its very nature, accepted without evidence. You can't have any evidence for the truth of that belief because all of the evidence by hypothesis could be misleading. The evidence would be the same whether or not the world sprang into existence five minutes ago. So you can't tell the difference between the truth and falsity of this, this claim about reality by looking at evidence. And yet, I would agree with everyone who would say that's a rational belief to hold that the universe is older than five minutes old. And yet Sam Harris says believing strongly without evidence is a mark of madness. Sometimes it's a mark of rationality. And indeed, broadly speaking, the demand for everything to be justified by evidence entails an infinite regress. If you say, I'm never going to trust anything or believe anything unless there's evidence in its support. And I give you some evidence to believe something. You say, great, that's wonderful. But of course, I'm not going to trust that the evidence is real or that it really supports that conclusion until you give me some evidence that it does. And I try and do that. And you say, that's wonderful. But of course, I'm not going to trust that evidence is real or that really supports that conclusion until you give me some evidence. It's digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hole that you can never climb out of. So we must have a broader understanding of how beliefs can be rational. 
than is provided by a focus simply upon a demand for evidence and for backing everything up in that way. Second incoherence, a self-contradictory anthropology. Anthropology, this is a long word that just means what people are like. Dawkins is very explicit about this, about his view of human nature, given his worldview. He says human brains, though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. And for Dawkins, a human just is their brain. He doesn't believe in the existence of souls or spirits or any of that supernatural mumbo-jumbo, okay? When a computer malfunctions, says Dawkins, we do not punish it. We track down the problem and fix it, usually by replacing a damaged component, either in hardware or software. Why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers or thuggish vandals? when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing. He has a very materialistic and therefore for him deterministic picture of human nature. We're just physical objects behaving according to the laws of physics. And sometimes we do things that each other don't like, but just as if a bit of hardware breaks down, we call in the engineer and try and fix it. And if that fails, we buy a new one. So that's how we should treat people. Because it doesn't make sense to start talking about people's responsibility for their actions or, or punishing them for something that they're responsible for any more than you would punish a computer. Or Basil Fawlty should have thrashed his mini with that tree branch in uh, Fawlty Towers, if you remember that episode. So let me put this in a question and answer form. Question, if everything about a person is, as Dawkins says, governed by the laws of physics, blaming them for their intellectual failings, say, surely makes about as much sense as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. Sure, gravity caused him to have an apple-sized bump on the head, maybe, but he wouldn't rationally blame gravity, hold it responsible for what it did. Given that, how could anybody, for example, um, a Christian, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? My answer seems to me they can't. And yet Dawkins seems to want, on the one hand, to say people aren't really responsible for their actions. It's all determined by physics. And on the other hand, to say to Christians, come on, guys, be more responsible in your intellectual thinking. Doesn't seem to me to be a circle that you can square. Or is it a square you can circle? Third incoherence. A self-contradiction in the field of ethics. Thinking about right and wrong. Now Dawkins argues that his um, Darwinistic uh, picture of nature doesn't justify what's called social Darwinism, that is applying the kind of law of the jungle to society. And I agree with him about this, by the way. And he says there's no logical connection between 
what is, what he would call facts, and what ought, what he would call values. If somebody used my views to justify a completely self-centred lifestyle, which involved trampling all over other people in any way they chose, I would be fairly hard put to it to argue on purely intellectual grounds. He says, I couldn't ultimately argue intellectually against somebody who said something I found obnoxious, or did something I found obnoxious. I think I could finally only say, well, in this society, you can't get away with it, and call the police, i.e. might equals right, in inverted commas. Well, in one sense I agree with Dawkins here, because naturalism, as a worldview, doesn't justify a self-centred lifestyle. A materialistic picture of the world, a belief in uh, evolutionary competition as a driving force of change in nature and so on, doesn't justify social Darwinism, doesn't justify a self-centred lifestyle that tramples over other people. You can't make a move from that descriptive is of nature to talking about oughts. But then, of course, that's because naturalism doesn't justify any lifestyle. Equally, it doesn't justify not having a self-centred, social Darwinistic lifestyle. It supports neither one, Dawkins is right, but nor does it support the other. It supports nothing. Justin Briley was a journalist who caught uh, Dawkins for a few minutes' uh, conversation on his radio show after a debate that Dawkins had been at at uh, Oxford. And Justin asked Dawkins, when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside this kind of evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's good? Uh, and you don't have any way to kind of stand on that statement. Let's see what he's kind of asking here. Dawkins' reply was, well, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past, i.e., because certain ways of feeling or behaving may have had a, an advantage to survival in the past for my ancestors, that would have been passed on to me. And that's how come I feel this way about certain actions, or how come I have a tendency to act in certain ways. Fine. JB asks, so, therefore, it's, it's just as random, in, in a sense, as, as any product of evolution. Dawkins, you could say that. It, it, it doesn't in any case, nothing about it makes it more probable that there's anything supernatural. You can, kind of can see maybe the, the course of Justin's um, questioning here and kind of to forestall uh, an argument that we'll look at later called the moral argument for God. But Justin comes back and says, ultimately, your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. Dawkins, you could say that, yeah. So, Dawkins' views certainly don't support the idea that it's a good thing if we all went out and raped each other. But neither do his worldview ideas support the idea that it would be a bad thing. The universe that we observe, says Dawkins, has precisely the properties we should accept, expect. If there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, i.e. no God, no evil, no good, nothing 
but pitiless indifference. It's just nature and what it does. Another quote from Dawkins. He says, there's a non-overlapping, exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. So, you're reading Dawkins, you know this is his viewpoint on ethics, and you have to keep thinking to yourself, okay, this means nothing to me. Page 272 of The God Delusion. Hitler and Stalin were by any standards spectacularly evil men. But this means nothing to me, because I don't think there are any standards out there. Faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. But this means nothing to me. This is not a claim that I'm making that I'm saying is true. So the new atheist view of ethics and use of ethics can kind of boil down to this. One, we have... On the one hand, they seem to be saying we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion is an objectively bad thing in that it encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations. Two, there are no objective moral values. I can push this even further in. Just a, a further tweak on this problem. Question, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview that denies any reality to intellectual obligations? Seems to me, they can't. Let's look at a number of arguments for believing in God and how the new atheists criticise them and how I would respond to those critiques. I'm going to have to be fairly kind of surface level here. I'm just going to sketch out some basic sort of introductory ways of putting some of these arguments, look at a few new atheist critiques and suggest where I think they fall down. Uh, we'll see how much, uh, how time is going because I want to leave time for questions before nine o'clock as well. Uh, I've been tossing up in my mind all afternoon, will I um, mention the ontological argument or not? Um, so if there's any philosophers here champing at the bit for me to delve into the complexities of the ontological argument for God, um, perhaps you might come and chat to me one-on-one -on -one later. Uh, I think I'll probably skip it out um, because it is a very abstract argument. The new atheist critiques of it um, are quite uh, old critiques that have long ago been answered by philosophers who are interested in that area. The debate uh, is not where the new atheists are, are having it, but it's a very kind of technical, abstract argument, and perhaps I should um, brush it under the carpet for this evening. I've got other things that we can usefully talk about, <coughs> such as religious experience, for example. This is uh, quite a straightforward example of the way in which Richard Dawkins, in this case in particular, treats uh, arguments of natural theology uh, in a rather slapdash manner, if I may say so. Let me give you a sketch of an argument that you might give from religious experience. You might say, okay, number one, it seems to me 
or to me and other folk that I know in our experience that God's real. The world seems that way. I, I feel that I've met him in prayer or I look at the world and it just seems obvious to me that it must have some kind of creator behind it. If I combine that observation with premise two and say it's a sort of general principle of rationality, something philosophers call the principle of credulity, the principle of trust, that we should trust our experience as being reliable unless we're given sufficient reasons for doubt. Okay? Um, think what would happen if you did the opposite. Again, if you said, I'm never going to trust anything unless I'm given reason for trusting it. Well, you wouldn't trust the reasons for trusting it until given a reason for trusting it, and so on and so on and so on. You'd be stuck in this kind of sceptical bog. So it seems perfectly reasonable to say, okay, let's take things on face value. Things are the way they seem to be to me until I've got new evidence and experiences and so on that overturn that. And I could kind of mention here that, well, it seems to me that there's a God. I should take my experience at face value unless it's overwhelmed. And as far as I can see personally, it doesn't seem to me that there is anything that overwhelms it. Conclusion, therefore, I think it's probably reasonable of me to believe that God exists on the basis of my religious experience. Okay. How would Dawkins respond to the argument from religious experience? Well, it's a little tricky to know because he doesn't actually lay out what he takes the argument from religious experience to be. He just kind of says, there is an argument from religious experience. And then he notes that experiences can be delusional. He says, uh, the brain simulation software, the way that we go from our sensory data to giving ourselves a sort of image of the world in here, is well capable of constructing visions and visitations of the utmost vertical power. Okay, I'm prepared to grant him that. I can agree with that. That's all, folks. Dawkins says, this is really all that needs to be said about personal experiences of gods or other religious phenomena. If you've had such an experience, you might well find yourself believing firmly that it was real. But don't expect the rest of us to take your word for it, especially if we have the slightest familiarity with the brain and its powerful working. So clearly there are no neurologists who believe in God on the basis of their religious experience. Dawkins' uh, attempt at rebutting the argument from religious experience, which he doesn't even really look at, doesn't actually even rise to the level of an argument, technically speaking, because he fails to advance more than one premise. If you're going to have uh, an argument, you need more than one. Observing that the brain can create illusions provides absolutely no reason for the conclusion that he's trying to get to, that all religious experiences are illusions. What he gives us is basically this. One, the brain can deceive us. Two, conclusion, therefore all religious experiences are deceptive. And I think you actually get into some tricky waters if you try and try to tease out, okay, well, what would that second premise have to be in order for the argument to work? How can you fill out that missing bit of the argument without making an unjustified exception to being sceptical about religious experiences without being sceptical about sensory experiences, for example? The cosmological argument, the kind of causal argument for the existence of God, which is repeatedly 
mischaracterized in New Atheist writings. Here's a very basic outline of this kind of argument. Premise one, something exists which is caused to exist. Premise two, it's impossible for everything that exists to be the kind of thing that exists because it's caused to exist. I mean, what outside of everything would there be to do the causing that was required? Or you could put it, there can't be an actually infinite regress of causes. Well, if those two premises are both true, then it would follow, of course, that therefore there must be some kind of uncaused cause of all of these caused things. And that is at least part of what theists mean by God as the creator. Not the whole shebang. It's often is the case with these arguments. They don't kind of try and prove everything in one go. But a conjunction of various different arguments together starts to build up a sort of identity fit photo, if you like, of God. A.C. Grayling is a philosopher. He thinks that theists like me need to believe in supernatural agencies because they cannot otherwise understand how there can be a natural world. As if invoking chaos and old night in one Middle Eastern mythology, the progenitors of all things, explained anything, let alone the universe's existence. I mean, doing so might satisfy a pathological metaphysical need for what Paul Davies calls the self-levitating super-turtle. But it is obviously enough not worth discussing. Mm, Marvellous piece of rhetoric, purple prose, but a complete absence of engagement with the actual argument. Okay, I'm prepared to admit I cannot, besides belief in some kind of uncaused cause, some kind of God, understand how there can be a natural world full of objects that only exist because they're caused to exist, that could not have existed, that are contingent and so on. But I don't admit for one minute that this is due to some peculiar failure of imagination on my part. Uh, The question is whether anyone, not just religious people, can understand how there can be a natural world without some sort of supernatural cause. And cosmological arguments, as the name kind of suggests, argue that you can't do that. Richard Dawkins, talking about Thomas Aquinas' five ways for thinking about the existence of God, the first three of which are all cosmological arguments, says they are easily, though I hesitate to say so, given his eminence exposed as vacuous. I think he should have hesitated a little bit more. He criticises Aquinas for making the entirely unwarranted assumption that God himself is immune to this regress of causality. He's kind of saying, okay, Aquinas is saying, some things are caused by other stuff, and the buck's got to stop somewhere, and that's God. And Dawkins wants to say, and yeah, what caused him? Okay? But a cosmological argument just is an argument for the necessity of positing a being that is immune to the regress. It deduces the existence of an uncaused cause in the conclusion from the premises that there are some things that are caused to exist and that it's not possible for everything to be like that. And of course, if anything exists, it can only exist either caused or not caused. So it's uh, the whole question of, well, what caused God? is like asking, 
What caused the existence of the entity which is by definition at the conclusion of this argument uncaused? It just shows that he hasn't understood what, what the argument is arguing. The moral argument, which we've already had a, a bit of touching upon, which you could kind of put like this. If morality, if moral values are objective, if they are, then some kind of personal deity exists. And you might think that because um, in moral values, say, we meet these obligations, these prescriptive commands to behave in certain ways, not to behave in other ways. But if these commands, if these obligations transcend individuals or societies, they're true whatever I or society thinks, well, how do you explain that in terms of something impersonal? Can I be obligated to atoms or my evolutionary history? Do lectins command anything? Only persons seem to command or obligate, and yet I seem to have moral commands or obligations that transcend finite persons. Hence, the only ex explanation of such a thing, if it existed, would be some kind of transcendent, infinite personal reality. Well, if that's true, and if it's also true that morality is objective, if there are facts of the matter contrary to Dawkins, then it would follow that such a God exists. Note that the moral argument is not claiming that a belief in God is a requirement for being moral. Or that a belief in God is a requirement for knowing the difference between right and wrong. That is not the argument. That's the argument. And I labour the point because time and time again, the new atheists divert attention from what the argument is and start talking about, yes, but atheists can be good people. I can know the difference between right and wrong without believing in God. As if anybody was denying that. As Stephen Unwin uh, wrote in his Guardian review of the God Delusion, as for Dawkins' assertion that moral behaviour for believers is simply sucking up to God, or that morality doesn't need faith, and so on, such observations miss the more fundamental question of why we have moral values at all. If moral values are objective realities, how do you explain their existence? What sort of account do you give of them? What sort of worldview do they fit with best? Moreover, by rejecting moral objectivity for the, the changing moral zeitgeist that shifts as time goes on, Dawkins, as I suggested earlier, renders his moral critique of religion and faith and so on self-contradictory. I'm going to skip over my lovely slides about the ontological argument and the uh, outmoded objections that they give to it, because that takes up quite a lot of time and I want to have some time for questions. So I'm going to look at the fine-tuning design argument, and then I'm going to turn my attention to Dawkins' central argument in The God Delusion against the existence of God. Uh, and the two are kind of interrelated, as you'll see. Supposing we had a giant machine, a bit like this, that could create universes. How fantastic that would be. We gave a... Uh, one sort of dial for every law of nature that we want to give a universe. And we can change the, uh, the strength, the relative values in numbers that we would give to these forces. 
Well, if we took a machine that was arranged to describe our universe, changed one of those values, like the gravitational force, by a very, very, very small percentage, keep everything else the same, press the create a universe button, what would happen? What would, what would be the outcome? Well, the surprise has been nothing very interesting at all is the answer. Nothing life-supporting, probably nothing that involved biology, probably nothing that involved chemistry, maybe nothing that involved atomic physics happening at all, maybe nothing that lasted very long, but certainly not a rich, complex, life-permitting universe. So you can mount arguments of various kinds of this observation. You could say the laws of nature are finely tuned, as the expression goes, exhibiting what some uh, mathematicians called specified complexity. I'll, I'll unpack that in a moment. Secondly, the best explanation of things that exhibit, that, that have this kind of complexity, this specified complexity, best explanation is design. Well, if those two are true, then it follows that the best explanation of the laws of nature from the Big Bang is design. Let me unpack specified complexity for you. Suppose I'm playing Scrabble. I like playing Scrabble, and you have that Scrabble bag, and you just draw sight unseen letters to put up on your little rack. Suppose I'm, I'm taking letters out of the Scrabble bag, and these are the letters that I take out of the Scrabble bag. Can a QWERTY look at a bit of something like that? Well, this is a very unlikely event. It's very complex in mathematical terms. That's just one possible arrangement of all of those letters out of a huge number of possible arrangements of all of those letters. It's a very unlikely event. It's complex. But it is not specified. That is, it doesn't match any independently, objectively given pattern that I could know about without just reading the event that we're looking at itself. On the other hand, I might pull out the letters D, O, G, oh, dog. Now, dog is specified. There is an independently given pattern that's being matched here. The rules of English grammar and spelling exist independently of this event, and this is a specified event. But it's not very complex. It's not very unlikely. It's not a very long sequence of letters. It's not very unlikely that in the process of playing Scrabble quite a lot, you would occasionally draw out a short word like that. Now, in both of those instances, where it's complex but not specified, where it's specified but not complex, you can very easily get away without invoking intelligence as the cause, as the explanation of what's happened. It might be, I might be pulling a very subtle magician's trick on you, but it's so subtle that you haven't noticed it, um, because I, through some sort of magic chicanery, made sure that you would get those sequences of letters. But just from looking at the event itself, you've got no reason to think that the best explanation of this is design, far more economical to say, ah, chance. But supposing you're playing Scrabble and you draw out of the bag these letters. All things do become, have become and will become, some by nature, some by art, and some by chance. 
Plato Laws, Book 10. Well, then I think you'd be pretty suspicious about what was going on. Because that pattern is both complex and specified, and clearly the product of design or art, as Plato puts it. Now, Dawkins says the anthropic principle, you may have heard of this, is an alternative to the design explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe. It provides a rational, design-free explanation of the fact that we find ourselves in a situation propitious to our existence. What the religious, remember the religious nutcase mind, the religious mind fails to grasp is that there are two candidate solutions offered for the problem of this fine-tuning that we observe. Sure, God is one, but the anthropic principle is the other. They're alternatives, says Dawkins. Dawkins is demonstrably wrong about this, and indeed I can quote Dawkins telling us that he's wrong about this. Indeed, the problem that needs to be solved is not, quote, the fact that we live in a life-friendly place. I mean, we couldn't live anywhere else, could we? As Dawkins says, rather the problem that needs to be solved is the unlikely fact that a life-friendly place exists. And these are two completely separate propositions. Dawkins explicitly contradicts his claim that the anthropic principle is an explanation of the fine-tuning, and he mentions John Leslie's analogy of the man, poor chap here, sentenced to death by firing squad. He's marked up there, tied up, marksman in front of him. The commandant kind of, you know, says, aim, ready, fire, bullets wing through the air, puffs of smoke, bits of dust coming off the wall, the bullets hit it all around him. Quiet settles, and the man finds that he's still alive. He says, is this, is this all some sort of elaborate practical joke? You're playing on me? Did, did someone bribe the, guard, the, the guards to, to miss? You know, what's going on? What explains my continued existence? And the commandant says, well, there's nothing to explain. I mean, after all, if the bullets hadn't missed, you wouldn't be here to be asking questions. And Dawkins says, well, obviously, they all missed, or I wouldn't be here thinking about it. No. He could forgivably wonder why they all missed and toy with the hypothesis that they were bribed, that they missed by design, that there's something here to be explained. Let me put it like this. Noting that the sentenced man wouldn't exist now if the firing squad hadn't missed doesn't explain why they missed. Equally, noting that life wouldn't exist now if the universe hadn't been fine-tuned for the possibility of life existing in it, doesn't explain why it's fine-tuned for the possibility of life existing in it. And so Dawkins abandons appeal to the anthropic principle that well, we couldn't be here in any other kind of universe. And he says, this objection can be answered by the suggestion that there are many universes. There are more throws of the die involved, and so actually it's not very unlikely that this pattern has been hit. So he knows that the anthropic principle is not an alternative to design, rather the alternative is many universes. 
The reason religious apologists love the anthropic principle isn't some reason that makes no sense at all, as he says. Rather, it's the belief that designs the better explanation than multiple universes, say. Dawkins' real objection to the fine-tuning argument goes like this. If there were many universes, then the specified fine-tuning of our universe would not be complex enough, not unlikely enough, to justify a design inference. Conclusion, therefore, the fine-tuning of our universe does not justify a design inference. It all hinges on premise two, the claim that there are many universes. What's his evidence for this? Indeed, is it possible by definition to have empirical evidence, say, of a different universe than this one existing? I mean, sure, if X number of monkeys, or chimps in this case, existed, then they could type the works of William Shakespeare by chance. If you've got enough of them, let's grant this. Anyone faced with the many chimps hypothesis as an actual explanation for the existence of the works of Shakespeare is probably going to ask, is there any independent reason to think that X number of chimps actually exist anywhere? And if not, they'll quite reasonably ignore the many chimps hypothesis and favour the design hypothesis. I don't look at Shakespeare's works and go, ah, gosh, there must be a heck of a lot of chimps around the corner. Moreover, philosopher of science Robin Collins notes that even if some kind of inflationary superstring many universes generator existed in any of the physical theories whereby it's even possible to think about there being multiple universes, they all have some kind of structure within the theory that's producing these different universes. And if you look at the, the description that you have to give mathematically to that universe-generating structure in the theory, it would seem to be an instance of specified complexity. It's, the argument kind of moves up a level if there is one of these theories turns out to be right, which we don't know. But even if it did, it tends to just move the argument up a level. So, to the central argument of Dawkins' book, his unrebuttable objection. I'm ready for this. I love this picture. Dum, 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 da dum, dum, da dum. Imperial Death March, John Williams. This is a World War I gun on a train. Um, this is the big one that Dawkins then wheels out, having looked at all the arguments for God, to say, here's my central unrebuttable objection to belief in God. Quote, the designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. Remember back to, well, who caused God in the cosmological argument. The whole problem we started out with was the problem of explaining the statistical improbability of the fine-tuning hitting the independently given pattern for life permission. It is obvious no solution to postulate something even more improbable. I think, actually, if you tease this apart, there's two separate objections here that Dawkins is making. First is the who designed the designer objection. Who made God? Who created the uncreated being? And the second is, you can't explain something by invoking something even more complicated than the thing you're explaining. Who 
co-designed the designer, American philosopher Bill Craig, notes that in order for an explanation to be the best explanation of some data, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Such a requirement would generate an infinite regress so that everything becomes inexplicable. If you say, in order to explain A, you can't invoke B unless you can explain B, and so on. That would be the general rule that Dawkins seems to be putting forward when it says, well, this just raises a further question, who designed the designer? What explains that explanation? But if you apply that as a general rule, science as an institution would crumble. Who designed the designer? That objection would apply to all design inferences in sciences like archaeology, forensic science, cryptology, um, parapsychology, psychology, um, SETI, etc. Lots of sciences depend upon making design inferences between teasing apart what's best explained in terms of intelligence and what's best explained in terms of natural forces, chance, the combination of natural laws and chance. So Alvin Plandinger puts it, suppose we land in on an alien planet, um, this is Mars, and we discover machine-like objects that look and work just like tractors. I apologise, but I've actually got a picture of a tractor. Our leader says, ah, oh, there must be intelligent beings on this planet who built those tractors. And a first-year philosophy student on our expedition objects, hey, hold on a minute, you've explained nothing at all. Any intelligent life that designed those tractors would have to be at least as complex as they are. No doubt we'd tell him that a little learning is a dangerous thing, advise him to take another rocket ship home and enrol in another philosophy course or two. If you think about the general rule, it's not reasonable to explain something by reference to something more complex. And I show you this portrait, self-portrait of the artist Jan Vermeer. It's quite a complicated work of art. And I ask you, is it rational for me to explain this painting with reference to Jan Vermeer? Seems the answer would be pretty self-evident. But Dawkins actually begs the question here by simply assuming that God would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the fine-tuning of the universe and so on. Ah, no, that's incorrect. As atheist Thomas Nagel says, God, whatever he may be, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. God, by hypothesis, is not a being composed of separable parts that just happen to be in that particular arrangement of bits that could have been in a different arrangement of bits and is therefore complex and unlikely in the very same statistical sense as the fine-tuning of the universe. God is not a physical object that's being appealed to here. Dawkins actually confuses, I think, kind of having a large number of metaphysically distinguishable parts like, um, if God knows everything, then he knows about the existence of this cup and he knows about the existence of this laptop. And those are two bits of knowledge that God has, and so on and so on. So there have been an awful lot of bits of knowledge that God has. 
Those are metaphysically distinguishable aspects of God's reality, if you like. But Dawkins confuses that with the notion of exhibiting specified complexity, which the fine-tuning argument was based upon. And by very definition, specified complexity requires contingency. It requires things that are one way but didn't have to be that way, could have been a different way, and thus are complex in their arrangement, unlikely. But think back to the cosmological argument that God, hypothesis, is the hypothesis of a being that exists without being caused to exist, who exists necessarily. God means an uncaused cause, an unmade maker, an undesigned designer, a necessary being. Asking who made God is like asking why do squares have four sides? The only question really is, is there such a being or not? Dawkins is just assuming, I think, that it's impossible that there could be a being who exists necessarily or uncaused. So I would summarise, and we'll jump over number four because we haven't looked at it. When it comes to the religious experience argument, there's really an absence of rebuttal. When it comes to the cosmological argument, the new atheists can commit the straw man fallacy time and time again. When it comes to the moral argument, their rebuttal is a red herring of shifting the discussion to, well, I can be moral without God, or I can know the difference between right and wrong. And actually, self-contradictory, as I argued earlier. And when it comes to the design argument, their rebuttals are question-begging, just make assumptions that are unevidenced, or are incoherent, logically speaking. Grand, we've got a little while for Q&A as well. And I will stick around afterwards as I... As Kevin says.